Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us today on Fearless Health Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and I'm so excited today to have a colleague on. Um, her name is Kimber Governson, and she is a nurse practitioner um, in the area that I practice in. And so um, I really wanted to bring her on the show today and just wrap with her a little bit about pediatrics and kids and pregnancy and everything else. So thank you so much for coming on, Kimber. So happy to have you. Oh, you're so welcome. It's great to be here. Awesome. So I know that you're so passionate in practice about treating pediatrics and also treating with pregnancy. Yes, absolutely. Those, those feel like really the, um, you know, just a really core level of preventative, preventative medicine. And so um, that really puts you in a place working with those populations to, to really affect the next generation in incredible ways before there are problems, before there are health conditions. So that's an absolute favorite of mine. That's amazing. And, and, and kids are so fantastic, right? Kids and babies are so fantastic because they, they turn around so fast. There's no placebo effect. Is that what you've seen in practice? Uh, yes, ab- absolutely. And yeah, the, le- the level of resilience that, that they have is incredible. And um, yeah, just typically very, very responsive to um, natural treatments, to holistic options, and to just some very, very basic things that maybe a lot of people don't necessarily implement in their lives or, or don't have the awareness to in the mainstream. So um, that's always a great kind of point of contact to really get things going and set the stage for a life of better health. That's amazing. And what do you think uh, contributes to that? Do you feel like, what do you, what do you feel like contributes to like setting them up for good health? Yeah, gosh, well, you know, I, I love meeting women if, if I have the opportunity and, and granted that, many pregnancies in the United States are not intended or, or planned, but if, if somebody knows and anticipates that they want to conceive, if I meet them there, that's always just an absolute preference because you can do some really expanded blood panels. You can really work with people on preconception health. How do you get really healthy? How do you get into the best possible position for yourself and your being to be able to carry life, to be able to conceive life and and carry life and have a healthy um, pregnancy and then birth. And then of course, you know, depending, you know, it's, it's all a spectrum. So some people I don't meet until the kids are there. And then we're working on breastfeeding and lactation issues, which of course is pediatric, you know, core level pediatric baby nutrition. Um, And and so um, if breastfeeding goes well, that's, a wonderful thing. If that doesn't go well, then, you know, then, then you're always kind of being creative with what that person's unique situation and circumstances are to kind of um, consciously make the best choices at each step of the process. Keeping them away from medications is usually, I I, I endearingly say that because I I went to school for a long time to be able to prescribe medications, which I hope to very, very minimally or never prescribe. So um, they they do serve their, their purposes. However, you know, we know that people are much healthier if we can prevent conditions rather than treat them when they come along. Yeah, I really appreciate that you do that. You are very conservative at prescribing medications in practice. It's quite amazing mm-hmm. to do that yeah. and really, really focus on that. So I, going back to, you know, a woman that comes in and um, she wants to get pregnant. And what would be some of those things that you would maybe just give basic guidelines about maybe exercise or something to set the body up in just such a way. I mean, obviously cleaning up anything that you see on the labs um, and, and, and you and I agree in both a functional way, there's definitely a, 
uh, a conventional way to look at lab work. And then there's also a functional way to look at lab work and really getting that in the best place. But what other advice do you give to women that are trying to conceive or looking to conceive? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the first thing that I like to really, really stress is that some of the most incredible impact that you can have on your future child's health is the health of your own being for the first, you know, for a couple of years before you conceive. So if somebody comes in and they're hoping to conceive, um, you know, traditionally medicine doesn't really do anything with that. They're like, hey, you know, go, go get pregnant. And then, and then it, you know, some period, you know, into the pregnancy, several weeks into the pregnancy, then we'll consider, you know, checking your labs and stuff. So having a really, really good um, foundational expanded lab panel. So you're really, really looking at thyroid levels and looking at functional thyroid levels um, is a is a really big piece. I also like to look for other inflammatory and autoimmune markers, um, as well as blood sugar control and um, some of those pieces that really, if you go into a pregnancy with those with those um, things kind of uh, not in balance, then you're already setting up the future offspring. Some of the most critical point in fetal development happens in those first, you know, those first early weeks of pregnancy, which um, of course is the time that many, many women don't even know that they're pregnant um, until they've missed a, a cycle or, or you know, a, even a couple of cycles, depending on on how how attuned the the person is, um, and so definitely labs is a is a really primary piece. Um, having a healthy weight, um, having a healthy exercise regimen, um, not especially even for you know weight is a is a range. You know, some people can be very healthy at at different weights, but um, but I do really feel like for the adrenals, for the hormone support, um, for all of those things, our bodies really, really need movement. So having movement as a part of that, and then having really um, good focus on diet and nutrition um, preconceptively is wonderful. Stopping alcohol, you know, uh, not waiting until you kind of know that you're pregnant before you stop alcohol. Um, not all of those things kind of contribute. And um, depending on a woman's willingness to, uh, you know, to participate in those different, those different pieces, um, you can go uh, really far down that road and make sure that the mom and even the dad, if, if you can get that, uh, are in as best possible condition as they are, uh, can possibly be before the conception happens. I love that. And I, I want to go back to something that you said, because I just think it's so key. You said, you know, you do the expanded blood panel and you really are taking a look at, you know, thyroid and blood sugar levels. And I love that it's really important to take a look at thyroid because um, what we have seen is that a lot of women, if their thyroid is off, can miscarry multiple times over and over and over again. And so women come in so defeated by this and they think that something is wrong with them. And ultimately, I think a really important point to drive home is if you are not able to conceive or carry a baby, there's something that needs to be changed on the lab work in the overall health. And this doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. And I feel like women come in and think that something's wrong with them because they can't conceive. The health just has to be addressed. And I just see so many women broken down like, well, I have to do all these crazy treatments to conceive. And should I freeze my eggs? And do I need to do this and that? And I mean, clearly the, the life that you do not need to sustain is the life of a child in your belly if you're so off. And and I think that people just don't see that. They just think that something's wrong with them. So I love that you brought up the thyroid and like when the thyroid is off, you will miscarry over and over again. And it's often missed because people do not run an expanded thyroid panel, you know, and and you and I both know this, like pretty, pretty close to the chest. And so, so then, so, so women are totally on board to do this. They have their blood panel looks great. They're good to go. And then do you work through, you know, I think one of the big questions we we're kind of in, in Boulder County, which is, you know, we're, which is definitely more alternative. And so you hear people really trying to mull over a birth plan. Like, do I give birth in a hospital? 
do I use a doula? I mean, how how do you work through you know that decision with people because it's very personal and and it's yeah. a big decision and and women struggle with um, what's best and what to do. Yes. Yes, because birth is, you know, birth is, I mean, not only from a, you know, clinical and health standpoint, I mean, I think just for most women, um, it's just an incredible opportunity. It's, you know, in my experience, I'm, I'm a mom of a 14-year-old. And so, you know, I can say that, you know, hands down, my birth experience with him was like a pinnacle experience of my life. Um, just mm-hmm. the experience of being able to give birth. And, 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 and so it's, it's something that people remember and will remember forever. It's so important that the individual is really honored. And I think I have, um, I think the most important thing is that women really know that there are choices. So, um, you know, I, Anytime anybody comes in and tells me that they're pregnant, that's the first question. Have you thought about what you would like your pregnancy and birth to look like? Have you talked through that with anybody? Because a lot of people, um, you know, uh, some people will have uh, automatically kind of an intention or an idea of what they plan to do. And and, and other people... um, that hasn't crossed their minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, that's taking into account, you know, someone's level of comfort, their level of confidence, their risk factors, you know, their proximity to, you know, to assistance. And so looking at all of those things and then really having some good classes. I have somebody that I um, refer people to who is a doula and who does a wonderful prenatal um series. And so she kind of walks women through, well, these are the things that if you have this type of birth, these are the things that might come up, you know, so if you have a hospital birth, they might offer you this. And, and you know, and so to really just kind of have a conscious blueprint, um, as, as most people and probably anybody who's been through the birth experience will say, is that, you know, kind of once you're in the experience, it's like, you know, it, it, there's, there's some things that you have some control over, but there's also some things that just, you're like, you're just in the experience. And, um, and so kind of setting the stage and making it very clear and kind of having consciously um, gone through that process of these are the things that I would like, these are the things that I would hope for, and these are the things that I, you know, uh, that I would like to decline. Um, and, and really having that consciously thought through ahead of time is really, is really helpful because once you're in the moment, you know, that's, uh, your focus is pretty, pretty occupied. <laughs> yes, I can, I can see that. I can definitely see that. And, and what is, would you say, um, you know, what I have heard of, of pros and cons of having a baby in the hospital, um, I, and I'm curious what, what you think on this, is a lot of people feel that if something goes wrong, they're going to be taken care of, but they also feel like maybe sometimes their wishes aren't necessarily heard in a hospital or, um, okay, you know, it's just, okay, we need to change the plan. We need to do X, Y, Z, and you don't have a choice or... Um, they feel like they have less choices in the experience, maybe a little more, um, maybe more pressure is, is almost what I've heard. Is that, is that, has that been the feedback you've gotten, um, for the, you know, Hey, if something goes wrong, I'd like to be here, but I also feel like I'm not heard very well. Has that been your feedback on the hospital or what have you heard? Yeah, you know, um, as you said, you know, we're in Boulder County. So I do think that, you know, those questions are really doctor specific or midwife specific or hospital specific. I know um, we lived, uh, when I had my son, we lived way out in the mountains, like Mm -hmm. really in the middle of nowhere. And his due date was uh, February 29th, 28th. (laughs) Um, and, uh, And so, you know, coldest, snowiest time of the year. And so I was, you know, having these visions of us, you know, careening down an icy canyon, you know, oh <laughs> and so, so yeah. I, you know, I decided that I just, I just felt um, I had never been through birth, and so I did end up having a, a hospital birth at, at the Boulder Hospital, and I, to this day, will still always remember the nurse who was there to support me, um, <clears throat> and um, it was able to go in this way that was very, very much to my to my intentions, to my hopes. And I remember the first thing she said, she walked in the door and she said, I read your birth plan. 
I understand what you would like and we're going to do everything we can to try and help you have that type of birth. And so for me, that experience was like absolutely wonderful. It was everything I wanted. It was not anything that I didn't, but everybody's experience with birth is so different. And I think the risk factors that a woman is kind of coming in with, as well as, um, you know, the individual staff that are kind of managing that at the moment. But I definitely think that um, having advocates is huge. So if no matter what environment that you're in, having people, loved ones, your whether that's your spouse or whether that's a, a doula or whether that's a dear friend, somebody who, who really kind of understands you and understands your vision um, to kind of help you hold that space and help you hold that boundary. Um, I remember um, when I was in that experience, I was really pushing the line with they were thinking that my water had been broken too long and um, they were thinking I might have to go for a C-section. And, you know, I remember the nurse specifically advocating with the doctor and trying to buy me time she was like give me 20 more minutes you know I know we can do this and and so um you know I everyone uh I think is not so you know doesn't have quite that experience but um but but I do think that you know kind of setting the groundwork ahead of time is really really helpful as much as you can and then having people who are there who really know you to be able to kind of help you navigate the the variables that inevitably just kind of come up in the moment and um and to see if you can kind of you know negotiate that path um because definitely you know if you do get an epidural then you're more likely to get your uh, foley catheter if you get the foley catheter then you know so it's kind of like once you start down the medical path of having one intervention that oftentimes leads to a string of multi- of medical interventions with which I think you know uh, uh, most of the patients that I work with are really really hoping to avoid. Right, and what do you? And I guess on since you brought up the epidural, um, what what do you also advise wise to women that are also on the fence about? Oh, should I not? Should I do it? Should I not do it? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I feel like women also struggle with knowing what to do in that situation. Do you have any yeah. advice yeah. for them? Yeah, gosh, um, you know, doing really, really good prenatal prenatal work and prenatal care. Lots of people do different types of methods of, you know, working with their breath, working with um, their partner to kind of help them with the breath. And as much as I, I mean, I remember when I was in the prenatal classes, they were saying, you know, sometimes toning is very, very helpful and we, we want you to practice that. And I remember sitting in this classroom as with all these people and, and, and moaning and just being very embarrassed and thinking, oh gosh, I can't imagine, you know, doing that. And lo and behold, I probably moaned for like 12 hours straight. They they probably were like, oh, good riddance. Could she just give birth already? Because that was like the thing that just really, really carried, you know, carried me through. So I think number one is having a really clear sense of what you, what your intentions are um, prior to. And I certainly have absolutely no judgment because everyone's birth experience and everyone's wishes for their birth experience are really, really different. Um, I really went in with a strong intention to to avoid, um, you know, to avoid that because I, I really felt like I, I wanted to experience it. But definitely, not everybody has that type of um, vision for you know for their birth, and um, you know, and then and then on the on the flip side, you know, um, sometimes that's just, you know, that that can be for some women, what helps them to make it through the birth and then be able to bond with their baby right after birth. So um, I think there's no hard and fast rules. A lot of it is just um, kind of consciously really looking at your options and then having an intention and then trying to stick with that and trying to have people support it. Um, it, you know, if, if that's safe and if that's within, within reason, um, once you're inside the experience. I, I like that. And I, I've seen the same thing people are just so on the fence and they're just not sure. And they feel, I I've seen people feel guilty for needing an epidural. They, yeah. they almost, they almost want you to talk them into not doing that. Yeah. And, and and to me, I think that that's a, a preference and a choice. And when you're in the situation, I think that you're going to make the best decision for you. But I feel like there's some shaming 
around yeah. that. Um, and I also feel like there's uh, there has been shaming around, especially here, because a lot of times people have babies at home, which honestly, if that's your risk tolerance and you're comfortable with that, and um, in case of an emergency, you guys have options, et cetera, you've thought all of that out. I totally, you know, I, I completely yeah. understand, you know, it just, it completely depends on what your risk tolerance is. Yes. But, but I feel like there has also been shaming too on the other side of things like, oh goodness, you had your baby in a hospital, but oh goodness, oh, you want to have your baby in a hospital, you know, yeah. versus at home, like how natural are you? Mm-hmm. And I, I just feel like there's a lot of shaming around the, the birth process, which I don't like to see. And I, I see women in here so insecure about a decision that they feel most comfortable with, but somebody in their life has told them that that's not a good decision. And that really breaks my heart. Yes, I know. I, I just, I so agree. One of the, when I was doing my birth training, um, one of the statistics that they said, they, they said they interviewed, you know, thousands of women after their birth experience. And they had been all different types of birth experiences. And they asked the women, did you, you know, did you feel that you were successful in your birth? Um, and, 90% of the women that they interviewed said, said that, they, they, that they did not feel that they had been successful, that they felt that they had failed in some way. And I'm like, oh my gosh, here is this the most beautiful, precious, glorious opportunity of your lifetime to have the experience of birth, no matter what that looks like. Um, and then here are all of these women walking away with, at some level, this in, you know this internal voice that's that's telling them that they that they weren't successful in some way, whether that's on the lactation piece or the birth piece or whatever. And so um, I just feel like there needs to be so much more breathing room around it, and that everybody is so unique. And I just really encourage people to kind of check in with themselves and go into their own heart and see what feels like is the right path for them. And, uh, you know, as, as most parents will say, you know, it doesn't end at birth, you know, it's sort of like <laughs> parenting is one of those opportunities where it's like, everyone feels like they have the, the, the right answer for, for parents. And um, it can be very, very hard, especially if you're somebody who um, is sensitive to the perceptions of, uh, of others. I, I feel like I've learned to, you know, I've learned to let go of some of my attachment to, you know, what other people think. Um, as I, you know, as I've gone on in, in my own journey and professionally, for sure, because, um, you know, I just have parents and I have people from every different walk of life, every different um, background, and some of them are very, very, very natural and holistic, and, and um, they've, you know, they, that's their path. And then I have others who, um, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, completely different issues and and they're not of that mindset and they haven't um, learned about these things and so just having a really open open mind I think as a clinician is so um, is is so important because you you just you just really can't help people if they feel judged they just aren't gonna if they just aren't gonna want to come back to you and they're they're not gonna feel like they can talk openly with you. Um, so that feels really like a really important thing um, for me, I think from my own personal experience and then, and then as, as a professional working with parents, cause I, I know it can be such a vulnerable time. Yeah, I agree. And I learned something really early on in practice that I remember when patients would come in and I had all these goals for people I had all these great goals and, Oh, we're going to get here. And then I started to realize that I had such a bias toward yeah. where I wanted somebody to go. And then I realized that it really wasn't about me yeah. <laughs> and that it was more about where they needed to go. And I feel like that crosses across the board. What does it look like for your, um, for your birth plan? Where are you comfortable with? Like what, what's your risk tolerance? I mean, where yeah. do you gravitate towards? Do you need an epidural? You know, and I feel like supporting people where they are and and making sure that you keep them on track for their goals and helping Mm -hmm. them to support them. But for the most part, you know, I think, you know, sometimes our, our thoughts or our goals can get in the way of that. And I just think being completely neutral is really, really important. I think 
and working with people and helping people. Um, I like that a lot. Um, so let me ask you this. So, so the, the, the children, when, when the children come and see you when the babies, when the kids, um, some of the most common things I think that we've discussed before that we, we generally see in practice, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is especially with babies, maybe some sort of eczema or atopic dermatitis, uh-huh. or just kind of like, and you, and you know, you'll know if maybe your baby has this, you'll see them pinching their skin or a lot of redness. Is mm-hmm. that something that you commonly see? And, and what do you think maybe is sort of uh, maybe an issue there or something that could be easily corrected or? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You see comments on that. Yeah. Um, so I definitely, I see lots of skin stuff with, with kids and, and oftentimes it's, it's, it is eczema. And that's the thing that, you know, uh, parents often see in very small children, um, like, you know, a few months old, you know, uh, I see four month olds with that. I see six month olds. Um, and, um, and oftentimes, you know, in the medical world and in my medical training, (laughs) which I like to use, uh, often as an example of what not to do, um, <laughs> yep. like what, we try not to do uh, what what that training says. But uh, but a lot of times, you know, um, we we'll, in the medical world, we're we're taught to prescribe steroid creams. Um, because, um, you know, in, in some way, in some humane way, um, they can be itchy rashes and, and they can lead, they can get, you know, very inflamed and very bothersome. And so kids can be troubled by them. So from a humane standpoint, obviously we want to help our kids with their symptoms. Um, and Western medicine doesn't really typically have anything else to, to offer for, um, for those kinds of situations. And particularly if it's mild, most parents are taught to just, um, or told to just kind of ignore it. Um, and that it, will usually um, go away. And so part of it is that the, the, the reality is that, you know, babies have this very virgin, pure, unadulterated system. And so everything that they're being exposed to in the world, the immune system is learning. So it's learning, do I react to that? Is that, is that friend or is that foe? And what do I react to and what do I not? And for babies, the skin is such a place of manifestation. So you can see that happening and you can see that playing out um, more than you do maybe with um, other uh, aged populations. Um, and so I think the important thing for parents to know is that it is an immune rash. It is an immunologic rash. And so there's something that, um, that there's a sensitivity, there's a sensitivity to. It doesn't mean, um, I, I try not to have parents, I have some parents who are like, and I've taken dairy and I've taken wheat and I've taken this and this and this, which actually usually dairy and wheat, I, wish that everybody would have out of their time. <laughs> so that's maybe a bad example, but there, you know, the, the, I have moms who are really, you know, taking everything out of their diets um, because they're, they're trying, which I think is a wonderful, valiant effort, but oftentimes um, it, it's, it is important to look at the purity of the, of the mom's diet. If, if the baby is breastfed, definitely if the baby is not breastfed, if the baby is formula fed, then that's definitely a point to look at. And and then how can you kind of manage the symptoms with things that are more natural, things that are more soothing, things that are more calm. And there's um, a bunch of things that I often um, recommend. So kind of two parts, you know, it's like with those kind of things, you're looking at, okay, well, what's driving this from uh, under, you know, an underground level, but then also, okay, how we, you know, we want to manage the symptoms and keep them comfortable. So you're kind of looking at both sides of that. Right. And you'll definitely see, I mean, I think the big thing, you'll see a change, you know, if a, mm-hmm. if, a, if a baby is being breastfed, you know, it definitely is something in the mom's diet, especially if they're not doing anything else for the most part, you know, yes. there is something yep. that is reactionary, but mm-hmm. I always see sometimes when a mom's milk supply can't keep up, they yes. will supplement with formula and you'll see a change in the skin at that point in time, like it'll be pretty close to when the formula is incorporated. And with kids, we don't see a placebo effect, right? That yes. we see with adults. And so it's, exactly. it, it happens relatively quickly. Like if you yeah. can look back and make that correlation, you'll say, oh, you know what? I actually started formula when my baby started really having this um, 
rash or really yes. sort of pinching their skin or really was constipated. I mean, constipation yep. is not good in kids. They're pretty yeah. regular. They're, you know, um, and a bowel movement a couple of times a week is not normal for anybody, yeah. uh, yep. much less a baby. Mm-hmm. So I think just really noticing that kids are simple. They're simple changes that yes. can be made and you should see big results. With Absolutely. The, yep. I think another common one that is seen that is along the same lines, you know, barring any sort of um, something serious um, is failure to thrive or failure to grow or failure for their kids to get bigger. Have you seen some of that as well in practice? Definitely. Definitely. I think part of it, um, you know, um, part of it is, you know, making sure that you have, you know, that you have a a, a tr- you know, a, like a true concern, because um, of course, the growth charts for the United States are, <laughs> um, you know, being compared against all other children that age. And so, you know, when we when we do have an obesity ac- epidemic, you know, it might not necessarily be a bad thing that your child is in the, you know, fifth or 10th percentile. So um, first, the first piece is, okay, is it genetically appropriate? Do you have petite parents? Is is that um, something that is, you know, is just a, a genetic um, thing, but it could be a healthy thing? Um, and, you know, where are they developmentally? So you're always looking at, you know, all the different areas of development as well. So are they bright? Are they alert? Do they have anything else going on health-wise? What does their diet look like? Um, and are they, you know, is gross motor, fine motor communication, are the, all of those things kind of um, on point? But if all of those things are kind of, um, you know, going well, and then you have someone who's just really not eating well, not digesting well, not growing well, that's definitely a big thing to um, to look at more deeply because um, we, what we know is that, you know, gut dysbiosis and problems with the gut and problems with absorption in the gut, those can happen really early. Those can happen at any point. Um, and so, um, and, and so kind of going down some of those paths and really looking at, um, you know, what's, what's going into their system to look at if there needs to be work to address, um, to address there. Right. I love that. Exactly. If you're not absorbing it, then how can you grow? How can you feed yourself? You're going to have blood sugar dysregulation. Yeah, I uh, I 100% agree. I, yeah. I definitely agree. And yeah. then I, I just, I think that's such a common thing. And unfortunately, in the world that we live in, our food supply is a little bit more toxic than what some of us grew up with. You know, our kids, it's just a little bit more toxic. And so it takes more management. It takes more thinking. It, it it takes more food prep, which is pretty irritating. But our food yeah. supply, unfortunately, is um, is quite toxic and absolutely uh, and Gosh. not really nutritionally dense as it used to be. Yep, yep, and that's huge, huge information. I mean, I, 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 I endearingly say, I'm like, it's this is not your great grandmother's tomato. So even you know, I mean, the tomato look might look the same as it did, you know, three generations ago. But when you look at the nutrient density of those things, because of the way that we farm, because of the way that we do agriculture in our culture nowadays, we monoculture, our soils are very minerally depleted. And so that doesn't transfer to the food in the same in the Mm -hmm. same way. And so, um, you know, not only if you have gut absorption issues and, and problems in that vein, but then the foods that you're eating aren't providing even in, if you had an intact gut, um, that level of nutrient density, that makes it really hard to grow um, to grow and to have a healthy foundation set up and um, part and parcel for the reason why we're seeing, um, you know, just exploding numbers in, um, in childhood autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, of course, you know, always goes back to, to the gut and the gut health and um, problems happening there. Yeah. And I I feel like the children have been a little bit of a target of some of the pharmaceutical meds. Um, And I I don't know if you've seen this or not, but um, number one, statins, which seems to be overly common. And number two, antidepressants. Have you been seeing some of that? 
Yes, yes, yes. I mean, absolutely. It is, it is really, yeah, it it is, it's very, very terrifying because, you know, I mean, the, the average consumer, you know, the average person, if they hear that, you know, something is wrong and that there's a, you know, a, a pill that, you know, their child is recommended to have to treat it, um, you know, most parents might do that. And, you know, not everybody is out there able to do their own personalized medical research. And so they're looking to their healthcare providers to kind of help them navigate that. And um, yeah, we're seeing um, very young children, eight, nine being put on Lipitor. And, you know, the reality is that we don't have any sort of long-term trajectory studies to even suggest that that is remotely um, safe. I I do appreciate that having very high cholesterol is, um, is is a health concern. However, um, there are different ways to kind of look at that and manage that. And and I think um, the medications can be a little bit of a, um, you know, kind of like a, they, they make us feel like we're safe, but really ultimately we're not addressing the, the problems that are underlying it. And so there are usually, um, you know, in my mind, much better ways to begin a, begin addressing that um, at young ages so that, you know, so that you're really promoting health rather than um, promoting a lifetime of somebody require, you know, being needing to be on that for forever. With cholesterol, I feel like, you know, cholesterol just has such a bad rap. (laughs) At the end of the day, like there is this car accident, right? There's this car accident and the emergency vehicles come to the car accident and you're driving by or you're backed up in traffic and you're yelling at the emergency vehicles for the problem. Like, I feel like that's cholesterol in a nutshell. Like it's, it's so misplaced. Like our focus is so misplaced. And I understand hypercholesterolemia or having like genetic cholesterol problems in your family. That's something very different, but ultimately cholesterol is due to something else going on in your system that needs to be found and addressed for the most part. And it's really easy to change. I've seen cholesterol drop a hundred points on somebody changing their diet in two and a half weeks. I mean, cholesterol, and, and obviously that was very cut and dry. That was simple, something that was being eaten and bam, but other things will contribute thyroid issues. Other things contribute to cholesterol. So I mean, ultimately, I just think it's sort of very misplaced, you know, and and ultimately you're not going to feel better on, on anything that blocking, blocking the cholesterol because most of our pathways that we run are fat pathways and all of our hormones. And so you ache, you don't feel good and people generally do not feel good on statins. Yes. Yeah. You know, at and I, I think that that's just a tragedy when I read that statistic that more and more children are being put on statins. I yeah. just, it breaks my heart that we definitely have an epidemic here and we need yeah. to start building health with, with kids. And, you know, the other thing I see in practice a lot, and I know you see this a lot, and obviously most, a lot of kids are being put on antidepressants and I'm, I'm yeah. seeing it younger and younger now in practice than I did, you know, even like a couple years ago. Um, yeah. But I think mood problems are so, so common in kids. I mean, and, and so how, what are you seeing with some of these mood problems in kids? What are you noticing and um, what are people coming in talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm so, um, I oftentimes, you know, I'm a family nurse practitioner, so I, I work in family practice. And so, um, when I have somebody who has, um, when I have somebody who comes in with, uh, their child and they're really worried about their child's impul- impulsivity, I see a lot, a lot of complaints about that. Um, anxiety, a lot of young, young kids who have anxiety issues, then m- more depression kind of coming up into the teen years. I, I think I see that more in the, in the, um, teens, but, um, but especially, I mean, even very, very early on inattention, ADD, um, it, you know, struggling in the classroom, hyperactive. And of course, you know, all of these things, it's like our brains cannot, cannot work. 
and they cannot function and they cannot remain balanced if we don't have some really, really core things happening. So um, one of the things that I really love to do is, you know, really go into nutrition um, because I I think parents um, have an idea that if they you know, aren't allowing their child to um, have all the sweets and all the cakes and all of the cupcakes that are, it's, this week it's Johnny's birthday and tomorrow mm-hmm. it's her birthday. And, to, you know, it's like, um, as somebody who's been a parent in, you know, and ha- my child is in, a, you know, just a, a charter school here, so a public, public school, um, it's like every single day is a a holiday or a, or a birthday or something. So we really, I think part of it is like really getting away from the mentality that it's like somehow cruel to, um, to give our children healthy foods and to really limit sweets and stuff. So, um, Part of it is our, I think, our own programming as as what is our relationship as parents, like really looking at what is our relationship with with food and with health and and with making those choices, um, because um, you know that that obviously gets gets passed along, and there are you know a million opportunities. So sugar is just a huge, huge driver of mood lability and you know a myriad of other health problems but but certainly in the um you know realms of like brain and attention um Mm -hmm. and and mood regulation so um that's you know one thing that i really really like to address and um before anyone ever considers doing something like medications with their their children there are some other things that really have amazing amazing impact like a lot of times um the the brain just not being able to communicate with itself and regulate like right left parts of the brain and Mm -hmm. so a lot of times people who are pediatric occupational therapists or people who do um neuro like sensory work sensory integration work I have kind of a, a, a group of people, um, practitioners, who I send people to who do all kinds of, you know, kind of kinesthetic work that really helps the right and left brain, you know, and the different parts of the brain to kind of communicate with each other. And that will really calm the system down incredibly. And so, I mean, it looks like playing, you know, if you're watching a, a quote unquote therapy session, you know, your child wouldn't exactly think that they were, um, you know, getting some sort of a therapy, but um, it works incredibly. And and even I, I went recently and saw the um, neuropsychiatrist who, who began Brain Balance, which is a big franchise that they work with um, children who have learning disabilities and from different, you know, different areas. And he's done incredible research in to this and he kind of talks about you know it's all it's all really the same if you can kind of map which areas of the brain are not communicating with other areas of the brain then you can structure certain therapies and activities that will actually help those parts connect to each other and then kind of set the groundwork so that the child will be able to think better and process better and um regulate mood better. And so, um, that's a, um, you know, kind of a confirmation of what the occupational therapy um, specialists and stuff have been doing for uh, quite a long time and why we know that crawling is important for babies, mm-hmm. um, you know, those kind of um, crossing midline mo- movements and stuff. So, um, that's that's another area that I think is really, really helpful because, you know, pharmaceutical um, medications for mental health, even for ADHD, they don't have great longevity, typically. Um, even if they seem to work in the in the short term, they, they oftentimes don't work in the long term. And so there's, there's just so many other layers to, to be worked with that um, will really actually promote healing rather than, um, than kind of keep them in a, in a cycle of just surviving. I agree. I think the sensory integration is really important. And, you know, the brain balance centers, brain balance centers are really helpful in like straight autism cases too, just helping the right and left side communicate. I also have seen with some of the impulse, anxiety, ADD, hyperactivity, Mm -hmm. I've also seen like just neurotransmitters be super low when you're running blood tests. And so ultimately neurotransmitters 
like that make you happy, like serotonin, dopamine, ACH, and GABA, they're all made, they're made in the gut. 90% of those are made in the gut. So if your gut is leaky, permeable, um, or, or if you have the wrong gut flora, you know, all, or an infection, ultimately you can't make those things and think about what we're feeding kids, you know, sugar, sugar, sugar. And so ultimately that can promote the wrong type of gut flora. So it, it, it completely depends on what the case is, but a lot of this can be easily fixed versus putting your kid on, you know, an antipsychotic or on Adderall or whatever else. And it's, it's really interesting to get somebody off Adderall, the amount of like nutraceutical dosing to help, um, to, to change the brain is high. You know, yes. so um, it, because you've been on amphetamines, you know, basically yeah. that's what you're doing, yeah. which is so hard on the dopamine receptors. Yeah. So I just, I love that. I think just helping kids just really enjoy their life and actually be happy is so, so important. And I think one of the things that I have, I've actually never talked about on air um, or that I've never disclosed is. I want to get into our next, like, most controversial topic um, <laughs> just a little bit. And we're just going to barely touch on it um, because it's it's pretty hot to trot these days. But um, our vaccines. And um, I personally um, had a vaccine injury, um, which I think I've never really discussed or talked about. But um, I actually ran a really high fever after I got the DPT vaccine. Mm-hmm. So what that allowed it to do was cross the blood-brain barrier. And I had a minor, what we call Wernicke's aphasia. And, uh-huh. Wernicke's aphasia, and I was in a coma for about two weeks. But Wernicke's aphasia is basically where you, you can't read and say the words. <laughs> like, I couldn't read and understand. So I could not, I could not read out loud. Um, and so I, I learned to memorize. And so I think that there's been a lot of questions about, for example, autism and everything else. And I want to just start this conversation by saying, regardless, I got a vaccine injury, injury um, what we're going to talk about today is going to be pretty neutral towards vaccines in general. Yeah. So this isn't going to be a bash one way or the other. But, um, you know, I think the biggest struggle that that people come in with is should I vaccinate my kid shouldn't I vaccinate my kid what's important what should I know about vaccines because there's so much emotion around them and I would almost say the vaccine argument is almost like a political debate right I mean there and so I'd like to just hear how you help somebody you know what you know a family walk through like what to do how to do like giving them options for revised vaccine schedules you know what are the options for parents yeah yeah gosh it's yeah I, I I definitely I feel like um vaccinations and whether to vaccinate or not vaccinate you know it's one of those questions that parents are hit with really early so we were we we're talking about birth and all of the decisions that you, you know, come up against with, with birth and, and, you know, it's like you become pregnant and then you're, you know, in the, you know, in the experience of pregnancy, and then you're walking through birth, which is a big thing event to plan for. And then you're working with lactation. And then lo and behold, it's your two month well child visit. And you're only two months out. And all of a sudden, you're like, Oh, I'm supposed to know what to do about the recommendation for my child to get eight vaccines today, you know, um, and, and and so, um, you know, really having, uh, having a thoughtful and conscious process around, you know, what you, you know, what, what that should look like for you, what you want that to look like, and what your beliefs are, what your study has been, what your questions are. Um, I think that, you know, the, the, the ground level, you know, my, my credentialing pretty much tells me that, you know, I, I should recommend, um, you know, the CDC recommendations carte blanche, but uh, I, I just don't really believe that that's true. Um, I, I think that you can actually really dissect the um, vaccination recommendations. And so I, at, at the very, you know, I, I really encourage every single parent to, to do that. And I, um, I start those questions, you know, I, when I see that, 
you know, mom who is like, you know, three days post birth, who looks like she's just, you know, hasn't slept in days because she probably hasn't. And, you know, I, I, I just mm-hmm. kind of plant, plant the seed that, you know, um, that, that this is something I really encourage them to start milling over and start um, having questions. Of course, some people have, have those questions and have that process long before their, um, long before the, the birth of their babies. But um, I, I think it comes in really fast and it comes in in a time, those questions where, you know, you might not necessarily be prepared to like, you know, do a personal research project on it because you're <laughs> sleep deprived and everything. Right. Um, so, um, so the, the, I think the really mm-hmm. important principles and the things that I really wish to impart to everybody is that, um, you know, we do have freedom um, to, you know, to choose and to choose how we do that and to choose what that can look like um, and the time frame. And so, um, and so as people, parents are kind of considering that to really look at, it's not just to vax or not to vax, it, it, it's to look at, well, what would we be vaccinating against and what is my unique and individual risk factor for, a, you know, for, for possible exposure to that illness? Um, because there are certain ones that could, could really safely and easily be delayed until later. And then there's others that, that you might, um, you know, be more inclined to consider on an earlier, on an earlier time frame. And, um, and in our office, we don't, you know, there are some offices that, that, that do, you know, uh, very combined vaccinations. We do vaccinations in our office as broken out as possible. Um, and um, that way people can can really, um, if they're going to do a vaccination, they will typically, you know, do a, a single vaccination at a time and then also, um, you know, give them a little bit more space. And so I think the... Um, can you tell people why that's important? Because I think that's a really... Very, very important point. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is kind of like a commonsensical thing to me. And um, that is that, you know, in, in a natural environment, if you got sick, you would be expecting your immune system to mount antibodies and to fight off that specific illness. You, In no natural environment would you be exposed to 10 different things simultaneously. And so that's just really a heck of a lot of a demand on a very small immune system to mount antibodies to that many different things simultaneously. And, and to me, that's not really, you know, you're not simulating nature in any way to, to do it that way. Um, and then, and then the other, um, then the other part about that is, is that just the toxicity, you know, some parents come in and they say, can, can, is there any like clean vaccine that doesn't have any sort of adjuvants. And I'm like, well, well, no, I mean, you know, every single vaccine has not only the components of the, the the illness that we want to um, mount antibodies against, but also it has adjuvants, it has stabilizers. And that's because that's how how they're manufactured, that that's kind of what keeps the um, potency or the efficacy of the um, thing that we're trying to immunize against um, there. And so, um, so with every single vaccination that you get, that's part of the risk. And so, um, our bodies, our immune systems and our detoxification pathways have to clear that. And so to me, it's just a question of, well, um, it's just safe. You know, if I could slow this down for somebody and give them something that would stimulate more of a natural situation and then allow their body to clear that before we gave them a second thing, that's just the most safe. And if you don't have, I mean, if I was working at, you know, um, somewhere that people didn't follow up or, or I might never see somebody again, or if they're living in really squalid conditions or, um, you know, uh, just not, you know, not being proactive in any way in their health, well, I might have a different mindset. But the parents that I work with are typically very, very conscientious, and they're more than willing to come in, you know, an extra visit here or there in order to be able to slow things down. And so, um, I, you know, I always encourage people, I don't know how many, you know, some clinicians are not willing to do that. Um, but the biggest thing is that you should feel like you have a say in what's going into your child, because once that's injected, you cannot remove it. 
Um, and so making those steps really thoughtfully and, um, and conscientiously and consciously and feeling like you've really gotten all of your questions answered is, um, you know, it's just, that feels like a really paramount parental decision, you know, decision to make. I agree. And I think it's really, um, critical that, you know, you made the difference between, okay, well, these parents are coming in multiple times and are happy to come in more to slow this down versus potentially why the CDC has a certain schedule that it does. Yes. It maybe because, you know, folks will only show up a, a couple times to do that. And I mean, I think as I reflect back on my own vaccine injury, had it have been slowed down, I probably wouldn't have had such a hyper reaction to it. And so yes. that could have been something that would have resulted in, in less injury or, or no injury at all for me personally um, yes. at the time when I was given the initial injection, right? Because my immune system was so new. So do you see yeah. less, um, less hyper responses? I mean, because I think I had a hyper immune system response. Um, do you see yeah. less hyper responses doing it one at a time? like significantly less? Yeah, I, you know, I do. I mean, this is the way that I've always practiced. And so, you know, um, I haven't kind of pushed the envelope with that. And I, and right. I, I personally don't choose to, right. <laughs> I think I probably will never, you know, choose to see, well, how, how much can I speed this up? But that's the concern, <laughs> you know, that I think that's the concern that most parents have is, you know, I mean, when I was fully vaccinated as a child, that was MMR, polio and DTaP. And so, you know, now, of course, we have many, many more things. And so parents are, you know, legitimately concerned about, well, gosh, what, you know, at what point um, is it, too much for mm -hmm. for the immune system, and that is a question that we we truly do not have research, and we do not have um, you know a, a true answer to to that question. And so, you know, I I, I really um, appreciate that the CDC is trying to keep um, people safe, and they have to make recommendations. That is, you know, they have to make the same recommendation for absolutely everybody. But that is not, you know, that's not the way that we practice healthcare. It's like, you know, we, when we practice healthcare, we really look at, well, what's their, um, you know, what's their unique situation? What are their risk factors? Are they in daycare? Are they getting high levels of exposure? Are they, you know, so you have to look at things um, as an individual, as opposed to, you know, as a mass population. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and there's no, there's certainly no advantage to giving, you know, eight to 10 vaccinations at one visit. The only advantage is that, you know, if that person might never, ever come back for healthcare, well, then they've been vaccinated against everything. But, you know, that's not typically the kind of situations that I'm working with. Right. That is so, I, I really appreciate you bridging that topic. And mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there's just been so much heated debate about to vaccinate or to not vaccinate. And so, just wanted to bring a different light to the topic of vaccinations that maybe it can look differently than fully get it all done now or don't do it at all. So yes. I, I really do like that you've walked the middle ground on this and really yeah. time to talk through some of these things and also talking through risk tolerances and what people are exposed to. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, yeah. Was there anything that I didn't, ask about that you think is really important to say? Gosh. Um, you know, I think the only thing that I would, that I would definitely point out is that, you know, I, I didn't really ever care if I liked my, my healthcare provider, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I was like, I would go in for my annual exam and, you know, uh, not that I didn't like my healthcare providers, but I didn't, it didn't really matter so much to me. And, and, and ultimately once, once I became a parent, that became really, really, really critical to me. And I just always hope for everybody who, who's navigating this path, um, because I do see it a lot with the vaccination piece is that some people will be so turned off or they will feel so 
judged or um, unable to ask questions with their healthcare providers, that they'll just simply either not go back or they'll end up doing things that they don't feel comfortable with. And so my, my, my hope is that really that everyone will be able to find a practitioner who really honors their own, you know, their parenting, who honors their intuition, who honors their beliefs and their uniqueness and their, um, you know, way of parenting and to really become a team so that, so that that can be a collaborative process. And, um, and so I, I just really encourage, encourage parents and encourage people to, to keep seeking until they have somebody that they feel like they have, they can create that relationship with. That's awesome. Yep. I totally agree. And if somebody needs to find you, where can they find you? Sure. Yeah. So um, I currently practice at a family practice office here in Longmont, Colorado. It's called Longmont Integrative Family Practice, and it's on uh, Mountain View Avenue, and we're there five days a week. So um, the phone number over there is 303-776-8847. You can also find us on the web, and um, and that's, that's where I can be found these days. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kimber. That was great. And I just really think you brought some good um, information about, you know, these, these questions that we get all the time. So thanks for shedding some knowledge and some light on all of this. Absolutely. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.